Uh, good morning, church. I'm going to uh, take just a minute and deal with the housekeeping thing. I had a microphone issue in the first service, so I want to look at Scott. You give me a thumbs up. Am I doing okay? Is it situated better? It's, it's a, a thumbs up. Okay. Um, if you are able to stand on your head, blindfolded and disassemble a bomb, you might be able to get in the training program to work with our sound system. <laughs> These guys are incredible at what they do. And this morning, I, I think my microphone almost fell off my ear and I didn't even notice. And they tried to deal with it in the middle of the, uh, in the, middle of the service. So thank you guys for everything you do. And uh, if, 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 I'm, if, if it happens again, just do jumping jacks or something and I'll stop. Um, this morning, uh, if you want to go ahead and prepare, uh, open your Bible. We're going to be jumping around in Scripture, but the one we're going to uh, read first is in the book of Colossians, chapter 1. So we'll get to that in just a minute. I do want to say that every time I get the privilege to stand before you, I do not take that lightly. I thank uh, Pastor Scott for every time he gives me this chance, and it is a privilege to stand before you every time I'm able. I also did want to say um, how much I learned and how grateful I am to have been here the previous three weeks with Jesse Haywood. Uh, he is anointed by God, and he is a great, op uh, a great teacher of God's Word. I'm so grateful to have had him be here the last three weeks. In addition to that, um, I felt like his preparation and the way he articulated the word was something to be admired, and I'm grateful for that. I did also want to say he's gotten a lot of folks that have complimented him and patted him on the back. And uh, if you're afraid he's going to get a big head, uh, he, there's no way of that happening. Because those of us that, that are guest speakers, Pastor Scott has his own microphone that he keeps tucked away. The rest of us have to share and so when I put this on this morning, it was after Jesse had had it for three weeks, and I had to, I had to telescope it out significantly to get it around my head. Uh, so he's not going to get the big head anytime soon. <clears throat> so anyway, um, this morning we, have, we are two days away from our nations celebrating the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So with that backdrop, I want to title my message this morning, The Ongoing Battle for Freedom. And so we're going to begin this morning in the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 1. So if you would, wouldn't mind, if you would stand so we can honor the reading of God's Word, and we will read just two verses from the book of Colossians, chapter 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, before we pray and before you sit down, I want you to just think about that. Dwell on it, meditate on that thought that he, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they have, he has, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That mental image is frightening. That thought 
that before we were saved, we lived in a domain of darkness. And then we've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. So uh, with that in mind, join me as we pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, help us to absorb your word and follow the instructions in your word. And love the author of your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the early 1600s, uh, there was a group of folks that got on a boat and sailed over to what is now called the United States of America. They got on the boat, they got on a boat called the Mayflower, and they landed on Plymouth Rock. We know that story. And uh, if it weren't for a few Native Americans that helped them, they may not have survived. But fortunately for them, and by just the providence of God, they survived disease. They survived death. They survived despair. And then they found themselves suffering through many winters. But after, but after every winter, there's a spring. And so spring thaws came. They began to kind of establish themselves. They began to work, work the fields, build houses, build communities, build churches, build businesses. Fifty years pass, and they're in the second or third generation of those that have that traveled over from the original settlers on the Mayflower. And there's more population. There's more businesses. There's more churches. There's bigger communities. There's bigger families. And a hundred years pass, more people, more businesses, third and fourth generation, people that are living in what was the original 13 colonies that were, had been born here, that had never traveled or gone to England, yet they still served the King of England. The King of England ruled the 13 colonies um, in this new land. 150 years after the settlers came, more businesses, more people, more, uh, more families, more communities, more churches, and yet they still served and paid taxes to and, and were loyal to the King of England, who was across the ocean many of whom had never even been there, were still serving faithfully the King of England. At some point, somebody said, this is crazy. Now, I think a lot of people were thinking it, and we don't know who said it out loud first, but somebody out loud said, I have had enough. This king is oppressing us. He is doing so much to make it miserable for us. He is just, he is taxing us to a point that we can't survive. This is awful. And so at some point, it went from a thought to word, and then people began to talk about it. Dinner table, town square, marketplace, it began to be a discussion. And then it spread. And, then, and people were still quiet about it because, you know, a lot of these thoughts were treasonous. 
the people that were talking negatively about the king could be called a traitor. And so they were careful and they were, they were trying to be discreet, but it just got, but the fervor grew and grew and grew where they just could not take the oppression anymore. So then, and you can imagine, you can imagine uh, the 13 original colonies, you know, up there in the Northeast, in order to organize yourself and get together in one place and discuss the idea of freedom took an enormous effort. You know, the only transportation those days was horseback or wagons pulled by horses. And so to get together and represent all these, all these uh, colonies took an enormous effort. And these people had to really work to organize themselves. So they come together and they begin meeting. 57 men began meeting with this idea of somehow being free from the king of England and his oppressive ways. These 57 men represented thousands and thousands of communities and men and women and children that were out there and they came together and they began to talk. And so one day in this day, this is the day we celebrate on July the 4th, 1776, they signed the document that said, we now declare our independence. We declare that we're free. Now, this document doesn't just say, hey, we believe we're free. It doesn't say that. What it does is they, they have this really ornate language. And then, and, and this, is, this, is, this is so amazing to me. This document begins to spell out in detail the grievances they have against the King of England. 27 lines, 27 different grievances in the Declaration of Independence where they go down and they're specific about how, they have how he has oppressed them. 27 different reasons or grievances where they say, this is what you are doing to us that we can't take anymore. Now, the next paragraph, after those list of oppressions, the next paragraph has three sentences. And I've got those prepared for the swing, uh, screens today because I want us to walk through each sentence one at a time. The first sentence says, in every stage of these oppressions, referring to the 27 that they had just listed, in every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Now. Uh, there's a few of us that might need that translated uh, since it's kind of old language. Basically, they said, as the king continued to force oppressive taxes, we humbly went to the king to ask for help. We did this on every one of these 27 things. The next sentence says this, our repeated petitions have been answered by repeated injury. In other words, every time we ask for a break, he makes it worse. So the third sentence in this paragraph says this. A prince, they wouldn't even call him a king. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. unfit to be the ruler 
of a free people. Now, they signed the document, they folded it up, put it in the back pocket, and said, well, I feel free now. That's not what they did. They made copies, they distributed the copies, they folded one up, and they mailed it to the King of England. They mailed it to King George III. Can you imagine how he felt when he opened this letter from his little piddly servants, subjects over there in the, in the New World, these colonies that he's taxing? He said probably something like this. I've been waiting on this day. It's all right, just let him have it. That's not what he did at all. He unleashed the full power of the British military on these ragtag farmers in, uh, in New America. Now, we know, because we're in a free country, that we won that war. But here's the, here's the thing. The last British troops that withdrew after they unleashed their military power, the last troops that withdrew, withdrew seven years later. So these signers of the Declaration of Independence, when they, when they drafted that document, they listed 27 things that, that, the, that the king is doing. Then they said, he's unfit to rule us. Then they mailed it to him. What happened at that point, they knew. They knew war was coming. They knew it. They drew a line in the sand, and they said, this is, it's fixing to get bad. What we thought was bad now, with these taxes, these oppressive ways, it's really going to get bad now. That declaration of independence was really a declaration of war. And so, lives were lost, buildings were burned, businesses were trashed, homesteads were ruined. People's lives were in shambles. And that was seven years. Today, or Tuesday, marks the 247th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So after those seven years, all we've done for the next 240 is defend our signers' Declaration of Independence. Well, that's all we've done as a country is we have, we have defended the independence they declared. They lost so much. They lost so, 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 so much. Why would they do it? Why not just pay the tax? They knew it was going to get worse. Why not just pay the tax? Why would they risk their fortunes? Do you know that many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were, were arrested and hung as traitors? Many of them lost everything. Why would you do that? So then the next question I have is, was it worth it? Was it worth 240 years plus the seven that they battled the British military, was it worth it? We are sitting here free. 
We, have, we live in a free country that we still have to defend. We still have to fight for. But I don't think anybody in this room would say, you know what, I kind of wish they had just kept paying the taxes. I don't want to have to go through this. Let, the, let England do all the fighting for us. That's not how we feel. So what does this have to do with us? What does the story of our founding fathers and the courage that it took for them to declare war on a much larger um, enemy, what does that have to do with us? Church, I believe, because I see it myself, I've dealt with it myself, there are people in this world, in the free United States, and in this building that are Christians, followers of Christ, believers, who are going to heaven, but their lives are marked by bondage. Their lives are marked by oppression. They are not living a victorious Christian life. There is bitterness, hatred, self-hatred, addictions. I believe that there are people that love Jesus that can't get out from under the burden of the oppression that they feel from the enemy. So, in an effort to try to use the patterns that our forefathers gave us to declare their political independence, I want to walk through the five steps to declare our spiritual independence. Now, this is not uh, the, this is not about being saved. I'm talking to Christians who are already saved, who live a life that's not victorious Christian living. You know who you are. You know that you put on a smile when you come to church here, but truth is, all week long, you deal with something. You are oppressed by something. So the first thing, number one, is you have to do what they did. You have to somehow let it come out, and you have to admit. You've got to get to a point where you say, I know I am oppressed. I know it. We must recognize some Christians are living in oppression. We must recognize that in this moment, some believers are a long way from living a victorious Christian life. We've got We've got to understand that. And, and if that's you, you've, that's the first step. You have to acknowledge it. In the book of James chapter 4, James talks about this. And he says, why are we fighting amongst ourselves? Why is there issues among us? He says, it's our passions that are at war within us. It's what's going on on the inside. It's what's happening on the inside, and we are fighting a battle. In Romans, Paul, Romans chapter 7, Paul even says, man, I don't understand. I don't understand it. I do not, I do, not do what I want to do, but I do what the things I hate. If this describes you, if you're a believer who has not claimed a victorious Christian life, you are not alone. 
the most prolific writer of the New Testament was at many times in the same boat. He said, I, 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 I do the things I don't want to do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. That, so that's number one, you have to admit. Number two, you have to do what they did. You have to be specific with your grievances. You've got to list them. Let me tell you, the, 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 the prayer that has so little bite is this prayer. Lord, forgive me of my sins. The prayer that has, that has so much meat to it is this prayer. Lord, I'm living a life of bitterness because my ex-husband or my ex-wife left me. I daily hate them. I daily desire revenge. I hate myself. I only want bad things to happen to my ex-husband or ex-wife. I am drowning in bitterness and anger. Lord, I can't do this anymore. Now that is being specific. That is listing out exactly what you're dealing with. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives us a list. It's not a complete list, but he gives us a list of the things that many of us may be dealing with. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, Uh, and the rest. <laughs> um, I can't read this. Uh, okay, hang on. Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, enviness, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. Okay, so I've broken them down on this long list of things. It's not all-inclusive, but it's a long list of things that can be included in the things we may be oppressed in. So the first thing he mentions is sexual immorality. This is pornography. This is marital affairs. This is marital bitterness, marital selfishness. Anything where you are, you are still married, but you're just, there is, there is tension and anger and hatred, and it's not God-honoring. Impurity, thinking about thoughts that you chase and dream about, sensuality, other sexual sins and actions, and idolatry. Anything that consistently gets more of your time and attention than your Lord and Savior. Think social media, think TV, think the love of money, think the accumulation of money, the mismanagement of money, the worry of money, the hoarding of money. Anything like that that, gets, that has you preoccupied to where you cannot serve the Lord because those things are idols in your life. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, the unkind way we treat others. Now listen, I know that God forgives us, and I know that this is such a silly example, but if, if you get angry every time you drive up Willow during lunchtime, if you get angry every time, 
and you think that everybody else on the road's an idiot except you. This is a problem. This is a problem where there is this fit of anger, this strife, this issue that you're dealing with that, that has you oppressed. If everybody else is an idiot and everybody else is stupid because they're just driving like you are, this is something you've got to deal with. The next thing, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. This is group hatred. This is like race, politics, sports, things like that. Okay, politics. Have you ever felt negatively about a group of people that don't believe what you do? Have you ever felt like, 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 like hatred? It's okay to disagree, but when you are trying to divide you're trying to create rivalries, you're trying to create divisions. This is, can be an oppressive issue that has you preoccupied. I even find this happens in sports. Listen, I've got a friend, dear friend of mine, who's a big UT fan, and um, he refuses to spend money in the state of Alabama. When he and his family are going to the beach and they actually have to drive through the state of Alabama, he will, they will gas up and eat the last exit in Georgia. And then they will, this is no joke, they will intentionally stop only for a bathroom break in Alabama and not spend any money and then go on down into Florida. He hates the state of Alabama because Alabama football team has beaten Tennessee's football team more often than not. How, why would you let that affect your beach trip? So then you have envy. The negative way we privately think of others. This is a comparison thing. This is things where you, you, you look at other people and you're like, why do they have it better than me? Just, it's just, it just grows in your heart. And when you see them, you can't hardly, you've got to turn away because you have this bitterness in you. Last night, my wife and I watched a movie, and Sean Connery was in the movie. He was the same age in the movie as I am today. And I remember thinking at that time, he's done a little better than me. He's hit a few more home runs than I have. Um, and so you have to, you know, you, we, we can't help but look at that. And that's a funny example, but the truth is we do that all the time where we say, we say, why not me? What, why does he get or she get all this good stuff and I don't have any? And it's envy and it's destructive. And then drunkenness. When I mention this, it's like any type of thing that has you addicted to where you're, you're addicted to drugs or alcohol or TV or pornography or whatever. You're addicted to it. You're, you're drunk with it. You can't help but get, but get to it again. You can't wait for the next time. And all we do when we, when we participate in these things is we, we, we know it's wrong. We know we're oppressed. And then what we do is we pay a guilt tax. Instead of making changes, we say, I guess I'll just pay the guilt tax. 
I guess I'll just keep paying the guilt tax. Because I don't really want to go to war. So, the third thing is you have to admit to someone, to the Lord, to a friend, a trusted friend, that you've had it. You've got to say, Holly, I cannot do this anymore. This thing that has me. I love Jesus, but I can't get, I can't break free of this thing. I can't deal with this thing. This thing has me oppressed. I feel in bondage. I feel shackled. I need help, Lord. And then you go to a friend and you say, listen, I have to admit something to you. I'm dealing with this. Can you help me? Can you help me walk through this? And then it's okay to use the same language that our founders used. You can say to Satan or to your flesh or to your habits, your generational strongholds. Let me tell you, there are people that I know personally that, that deal with something that they are oppressed by and their daddy had the same issue and their granddaddy had the same issue. And this is a generational stronghold that has, that has strangled this family for generations, for generations. And so this may be the time that you can say, things change now. I'm going to break free. I love the Lord. I'm going to break free from this bondage. And then you can say, a prince whose character is marked by tyranny is unfit to be a ruler of a free people. Whether it be your flesh, whether you want to point your finger at Satan, point your finger at your habits, point your finger at your family, doesn't matter. You just have to admit, whatever it is that's causing the oppression is not fit to be your ruler. So number four, you need to declare your independence. You need to finally say, I'm done with this. Now, the Bible gives us help with this. There's tons and tons and tons of Scripture, but I want to read two. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he, he, Paul tells us, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to what? Destroy strongholds. We have weapons available to us that has the power to destroy strongholds. And then in Psalm 118, chapter, uh, verse 4, verse 5, out of my distress. So when you are struggling and you're in this hopeless oppression and you want to live a victorious Christian life, the psalmist says, out of my distress I called on the Lord. And the Lord answered me and did what? He set me free. Now, this is the, ne the next part, part number five, is the hardest part. Because what we a lot of times want to do is we want to say to Christians, just love the Lord and it's going to be okay. And I'm going to tell you, I have been in a position where I have stood with nothing and the Lord gave me peace that passes all understanding. 
So I understand that. But I'm also going to tell you this. The Christian life is a battlefield. You must prepare for war. You must. When you declare your independence from the oppression that you're feeling from some of these strongholds, some of these secret sins, some of these things you're dealing with, you need to get ready for war. Satan is going to come after you because he likes the fact that you're oppressed. He likes the fact that you feel like you're in bondage. You're not doing any good for the work of the Lord if you're tied up. So he wants you to stay that way. So when you declare your independence, prepare for war by protecting yourself and serving others. So how do we protect ourselves? We just finished a few weeks ago Vacation Bible School, and there's probably not a section of Scripture that our kids could memorize that will give us more power and more ammunition to face the world as they grow up than Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, you remember the, in Colossians, the domain of darkness that he rescued us from? So he's telling us now, this is what we wrestle against every day. The rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. Now, when they go through this, many of us have studied the, uh, the armor of God. I'm just going to mention a couple of things. The belt of truth is what holds everything together. It holds everything together. We have to be rooted in the truth. What does, how does the Bible describe Satan? He is the father of lies. He is the great deceiver. So the only way we can do battle against the father of lies is to be rooted in the truth. Now, what is the greatest source and resource of truth known to man and known to us? The Word of God. If you're not in the Word of God daily trying to fully have it, have it take root in your life and protect you, then you're missing the opportunity to win your Christian battles. Because Satan knows what, you tempted, what you're tempted with. He knows your struggles. So you've got to be able to withstand the whispers of the great deceiver, the father of lies. You've got to be able to withstand that. And so the only way to not know that you're being told a lie is to know the truth. So you do, you, you've, got to, you've got to immerse yourself in God's Word. And then number two, the breastplate of righteousness. When those, when those guys put on the breastplate of righteousness, it was an attempt to protect their heart. So in our day, it's you have to protect what is coming into your heart. You've got to have a shield, a breastplate of protection over your heart. You've got to be so careful what comes in, what you watch, what you look at, who you talk to, what you listen to, 
who you hang out with, you've got to be so careful because he's using those those times that we take off the breastplate of righteousness and we're not protecting our heart. He uses that. My goodness, if you walk out into the world, you're walking out into an open sewer. And so when you walk out into an open sewer, if you aren't already protected and protecting yourselves and being intentional with what you listen to, what you read, who you talk to, who you spend time with, you are going to not be protected and you're not going to have on the breastplate of righteousness. Therefore, you're not going to be ready for war. We've got to, if you are oppressed and you're dealing with something and you need to change it, then you've got to, you've got to stop hanging out with some of the people you hang out with. You've got to stop reading and listening to and watching some of the things you watch. And then you have to start reading, listening to, and watching things that are good for you, that protect your heart. After this, after you put on the full armor of God, the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 13, he says, he says, your freedom, brothers, your freedom is not just for you and not for you to work in the flesh, but through love, you've got to serve one another. When you first protect yourself and begin to make the changes you need to make to immerse yourself in God's Word, to, be, to, to protect your heart, the next thing you've got to do is you've got to figure out how you can be a part of this community and serve. You've got to serve others. Let me tell you, just within the church, there's an unlimited number. And then you go to our mission partners that are in town. And then you can go to our domestic mission partners, our church planners. And then you can go to the international partners. And that's just people that are connected to Stephen Street. There's unlimited ways to put someone ahead of you. And as you do that, these, some of these oppressive things start to fade away because one, you're already in God's Word, two, you're protecting your heart, and three, you're thinking about others. These are all godly things the Bible tells us to do. And I'm going to tell you, there was one time when I was in high school, I was 16 years old, I was on the track team. Now, I don't know if any of you all ever ran track. I don't know if any of you ever ran this race on the, on the track team. It is the most boring, the least, um, the least fun race on a track team. It's the two-mile race. Now, what everybody wants to see are the sprints. Everybody wants to see everybody go whoo, whoo, in 10 seconds. Likes to see the javelin or the pole vault or the hurdles. The two-mile race is a bunch of no-name, not fast enough to sprint guys running around in circles for eight laps. It's dreadful. And that's what I ran in track. So we had a team and we had four people that ran the, the two mile race, four of us. Generally speaking, most of the time I was the second fastest on our team. So normally if we would, if we would practice or run two miles as a team, I would come in second and we'd have a couple of guys come in behind me and then one guy always beat me. So there was this one track meet and we were running against two other schools, and we were at a play. And, and so, by the way, the way track works is they add up points for every person on your team that completes 
and does so and, 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 and places at a certain spot. Like there's scores for all of that. So they add up all, how you did in the sprints and how you did in the field events and how you did in the long races, how you did in the hurdles. And then at the end that you have a, an accumulation of points and whichever team has the most points wins that track meet. So we are racing against two other schools and we get ready to line up and I just didn't feel it that day. I didn't feel like running. My heart wasn't in it. And so the gun went off and we started running. I got about a lap or two in and I started really fading back. I started really fading back. I, did, I wasn't running that hard. And what I started to do is the t the, I had, of course, one teammate that was always ahead of me, but then the other two that usually finished behind me, they were ahead of me. And I started justifying my lack of effort by, in my heart, rooting for them. I was like, good for them. Way to go. You guys are going to have a good meet. doesn't matter that I don't have one. It, you guys are going to do a good job. You know, that sounds admirable, but the truth is, if you're in a race, you, just, you, need, you, need, to get, you need to be in it to win it. There are a lot of believers who will say to themselves, man, declaring war on this bondage I'm in is going to be too much trouble. I'm just going to pay the tax. So as I'm running around, I get about four and a half laps in, and my track coach who had never done this before, he walks out onto the track. I mean, he is right next to me as I pass by. And he starts clapping. And he says, Lee, we need you. We need you. <clears throat> when there is a believer who is struggling and they fight against an addiction or against an oppression or against something they're dealing with and they eventually claim a victory. That is so encouraging to us. When you decide to get in the war, it helps us all. It helps us all to be encouraged we're in this battle together. We need you. So to close today, I want to ask the question that was asked earlier in the service. All this that we have to do, all this battle, listing the grievances, getting together, being uncomfortable, preparing for war, getting in God's word, serving others, Here's my question. Is he worthy? Question we asked earlier in the song. Is he worthy? What is the answer? He is. Father, I just pray that you will give us the strength. Give us the courage. Give us the friends that we need. Give us the ability. 
to follow the directions of your word, to listen to the leading of your Holy Spirit, to acknowledge that you're worthy of this life, a Christian life that is prepared for battle. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for being beside us the whole way. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.